0: Today I want us to see how God's grace showed up in the life of Jonah. Uh, I appreciated what Andy Stanley had to say in his opening remarks in uh, the chapter that he wrote on Jonah in this book, The Grace of God. Maybe some of you have been reading this book and keeping up uh, with it. I want to quote to you uh, what he had to say in his, in this uh, very first paragraph that he wrote, chapter 8. Skeptics have argued for centuries that this story could never have happened. No one can live for three days in the belly of a fish. And arguing that it was a whale, not a fish, is really not all that helpful. If this story is historical, then it required a miracle. Actually, several miracles. Jesus referenced Jonah... Apparently, he thought Jonah was a historical figure and that the events recorded in the book of Jonah actually happened. So, Andy Stanley says, that's my view. I always side with Jesus on debatable matters. Here's why. He rose from the dead. I'd like to do that someday too. So, I just go with Jesus' take on things even when they are hard to take. And I think that is so right on. That is a good position for us to hold to. If Jesus said it's true, then it's true. If Jesus believed it and felt confident in it, then we have reason to believe it too. And certainly this miracle would not have been too difficult for God. God can do anything He wants. He can create the world with a spoken word. He can divide the waters of the Red Sea. He can hold the sun in its place and even cause it to back up. He can raise the dead to live again. There is nothing too difficult for God, including helping a man survive in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. Humanly speaking, that may seem impossible. It may seem unbelievable, but when God is involved in it, nothing is impossible. I wonder, are we willing to believe this book to be true? Are we willing to accept everything in this book as true? There are some who want to pick and choose what they want to believe out of this book, and then they want to throw out those parts that they think are unbelievable. And the story of Jonah is one of them. For, for those who hold to this view, they think this, this story of Jonah, it's just hard to believe. And so let's just throw it out. Oh, yeah, the story of the creation account, that's hard to believe too. And, and so let's just cut that out of the Bible. The miracles, we can't really explain them, nor can we duplicate them today. So let's just cut those miracles out too, those stories. There's one problem with this view. It's not God's view. And God does not give us the authority to pick and choose what what we want to believe out of the Bible. This is true and this isn't true. No. God's view is echoed by the words of Jesus in John 17, 17, where he said, Thy word is truth. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16 says, All Scripture is inspired by God. In other words, every story that is in this book, every word, in fact, every stroke of the pen that is in this book is from God, and it is true. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The truth is, this whole book, is God's book, and it is true, and that includes the story of Jonah. And so let me get to the theme of this sermon. How does the grace of God show up in the life and story of Jonah? And I would answer that by saying this. First of all, God's grace is extended to all people. And this is good news for us today. God's grace was not just for the Jews. Now, Jonah thought it should be just for the Jew, but God had a different view than that. He wanted to make His grace available for all people, including the Ninevites. Let me read to you again from Andy Stanley. As he writes about the Ninevites, he says, To be fair, I can appreciate why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, one of Israel's most vicious enemies. The Assyrians had turned cruelty into an art. They had perfected torture. They dismembered and disfigured people, skinned them alive, boiled them in oil, and impaled them on stakes. From Jonah's point of view, these people weren't worth saving. The last thing he wanted to do was to be God's emissary of grace. They didn't deserve grace. What they deserved was judgment. Well, thank God we don't always get what we deserve. Amen? That's His grace. He wanted to give the Ninevites an opportunity to be saved. And so he commissioned one of his prophets, Jonah, to go and preach to them a message of repentance. Well, Jonah couldn't stand the thought of these heathen people being given the opportunity to repent. I guess he thought he knew better than God. And so he decided to go the other direction. Nineveh was 500 miles northeast of where Jonah lived. Instead of going northeast, Jonah got on a ship at Joppa and he headed west towards Tarshish which was 2,300 miles in the other direction. Stanley said it this way, Jonah couldn't have chosen a destination any further from Nineveh than the port of Tarshish. Jonah was not content to simply tell God no. He went in the opposite direction. And so we've got a prophet that is rebelling against God. And he's on the run. Before I deal further with Jonah, let me just emphasize this point about God's grace. His grace is for all people. He loves all people. And he wants every person to have the opportunity to be saved. Now, that doesn't mean that every person will be saved. But God wants to give every person the opportunity to be saved. Their nationality doesn't matter to him. Their skin color doesn't matter to him. The amount in their checkbook doesn't matter to him. The fact as to whether they are Republican or Democrat doesn't matter to him, or male or female, or young or old. He wants every person to be given the opportunity to be saved, he wants good people saved. And he knows that good people are not going to be able to make it on their own. And so he wants to give them the opportunity to be saved. You know what else? He wants, quote-unquote, bad people to have the opportunity to to be saved too. And so he gives them that opportunity. His grace is enough to cover all of our sins. You know, he can save the homosexual. He can save the adulterer. He can save the liar and the murderer. He can save the the self centered person. He can save anybody if they will choose to turn away from their sin and turn their heart to Him in full surrender. And that's what He wants more than anything else. He wants us to be saved. You do understand, He wants us to be saved more than what He wants us to be healthy. Think about that. He wants us to be whole on the inside more than what he wants us to be whole on the outside. Some of you will recognize the name Johnny Erickson Tata. She is a paraplegic. She has had a tremendous testimony through the years of her faith in Jesus and how God has sustained her. And I have written in the back of my study Bible a quote by her, it's been there for years. And this is what she once said. I'd rather be in this chair, this wheelchair. You, you remember, she's a paraplegic. All she can move is from here up. And she says, I'd rather be in this chair knowing him than to be on my feet and not know him. And God would rather that to be the case too. Our relationship with him is what matters most to him. He wants you saved more than he wants you rich and living the American dream. He wants you saved more than what he wants you to be successful by worldly standards, because he knows that the only thing that matters when it comes to eternity is that you be saved. And so the story of Jonah teaches us that God wants Everybody saved. His grace is extended towards all people. But there is a second lesson that we can learn from this story of Jonah. And this one's not so easy for us to understand and grab a hold of. And the lesson is this. God's grace sometimes brings discipline into our life. And, and really, that's hard for us to get our minds wrapped around that God's discipline, which can be very hard and painful, can actually be for our good. And and many of you are already familiar with the story of Jonah. You know he boarded a, a ship headed away from Nineveh, but he quickly learned that you can run from God, but you cannot outrun God. He was asleep in the bottom of a boat, and and God sent this great storm upon the sea. The sailors were afraid for their lives, and these are veteran sailors. These are fellows who have been on the sea, and this is the way they have made their living. They have been accustomed to storms, but this storm had them scared for their life to such a point that they are throwing cargo overboard, hoping to lighten the load of the ship. And and they are just hoping beyond hope that, that the ship will hold together. And each one of them, the Scripture says, are crying out to their God for deliverance. Whatever their God was, they're crying out to Him. And the captain of the ship realizes that Jonah, this One who has boarded the ship is not with them. And so he goes down to the bottom of the ship. He finds Jonah asleep. I don't know how in the world he's sleeping through this storm, but he is. And so the captain wakes him up and he says, you get up, cry out to your God. We're in trouble. And a decision was made to cast lots to see if one of them was the reason for this storm. Maybe one of them had angered their God in some way, and so lots were drawn. Uh, I'm thinking this is like drawing straws, and whoever gets the short straw is the, is the fella. and guess who got the short straw? Jonah did. And that's when he confessed to them. Verse 9 of chapter 1, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the land. And so Jonah was the reason for this storm. And he was eventually thrown overboard to appease the Lord. And interestingly, this was even done at Jonah's request. Verse 12 of chapter 1, He said to them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that on account of me this great storm has come upon you. And interestingly, in verse 15, it says, when they threw him into the sea, the sea stopped its raging. (laughs) You think that made an impact on these sailors? You know it did. As the sea is just tossing the boat from one way to the other, and they toss Jonah into the water, and all of a sudden the sea becomes calm. You know that made an impact on these fellas. Verse 17 says, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Keep in mind, this is an orchestrated event by the hand and the finger of God. Do you think God has Jonah's attention at this point? You know he does. He's had his attention from the very start as these guys picked him up and threw him into the water. He's got Jonah's undivided attention and the fish is there to swallow him up And in chapter 2, verse 2, we see Jonah doing what any one of us would be doing. He is crying out to God. He is praying. Verse 2 says, I called out of my distress to the Lord. I'm thinking this was quite a fervent prayer that Jonah's praying at this point. It's not a lackadaisical prayer. It's not something he's just going through the motions and... And not really got his heart into it. This is a prayer that all of his soul and energy is focused into. He's, he's crying out to God for deliverance and for help. Isn't it true that we do that too when we get into hard times, we cry out to God? And I'm wondering, why don't we cry out to Him more often? Why don't we cry out to Him day by day by day, even when the times are good? God wants us to do that, and we should do that. God wants a relationship with us. Not just when we're in trouble, but every day He wants our time and our attention and our devotion. And we find it to be true in Jonah's case. God loves us enough that he is willing to discipline us when we need it. And Andy Stanley said it this way, and I think this is worth writing down in the back of your Bible, just so you can recall it in the years to come. The purpose of God's discipline was not to pay him back, but to bring him back. And that is a nugget of truth which, which we need to grab a hold of throughout our whole life. God's discipline was for Jonah's good. God's discipline was actually a demonstration of his grace. And this is, this is hard for us to understand because most often when we think of God's grace, we think of him saving us and we're relishing in his goodness and, and his good gifts to us and, and things are going great for us and that's God's grace to us. But we need to understand too, God's grace is demonstrated to us at those times when he disciplines us. He loves us enough to discipline us. You and I as parents disciplined our children, not because we enjoyed it, but we knew they needed it and it would be good for them in the long run. Our discipline to them would get their attention. In fact, the Scripture says out of Proverbs, I've got two references here for you to look at as I'm speaking to you. Proverbs 22 and Proverbs 23. Our discipline would drive away their foolishness, says the book of Proverbs. And our discipline would save their soul from hell. And likewise, God's discipline is for our good. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11 says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And so what Andy Stanley has said to us in his book is exactly right. The purpose of God's discipline with Jonah was not to pay him back, but rather to bring him back. God wants us to be growing. He wants us to be obeying Him and being sold out to Him. And if it takes a little discipline along the way, He will do that for us. He knows how to get our attention. Just like He knew how to get Jonah's attention, He knows how to get our attention too. He loves us enough to discipline us. Revelation 3, 19, Jesus said, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. You take a look at that scripture, you see the the hope and the goal of God's discipline to us is repentance, that we would come to our senses, that we would turn away from our sin and turn towards him, that we would surrender to him. That's the goal of discipline in our life from God the Father. It's not that he wants to beat us down and and make us feel bad. No, he wants us to repent. And he knows that if we will repent, we'll feel better, we'll be better. It will be for our good. C.S. Lewis said it this way, God whispers to us in our pleasures, He speaks to us in our conscience, and He shouts to us in our pain. And sometimes it takes the discipline of the Lord to get us back on track. It is an act of grace that He cares enough about us to discipline us. Let me read to you Hebrews 12, verse 10. We read verse 11 a few minutes ago. Verse 10 says this, For they, this is speaking of our fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But He, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. And so I was thinking of some times through my life that God has disciplined me. Can you think of some times that maybe God has disciplined you, that He spanked you, that He's got your attention? Most of the time that God has disciplined me has come through the rebuke of someone that I love, such as my wife. Or a trusted friend who has loved me enough to speak the truth to me. Or even in some cases, the elders of the church, as they have sat down with me and they have talked with me through a situation and, and they've helped me to see how maybe I could have handled that situation better than what I did. And that's a humbling situation. And if I respond in a Godlike way to that rebuke and to that counsel, then I'm going to be the better person because of it. I'm going to be more holy. I'm going to be more God's man. I will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness, the scripture says. But what if I respond to, in that situation to pride? in a prideful way. You know, I, I know better than you. I'm smarter than you. Well, that's a whole nother story, and it's not going to end up very well. You see, when God disciplines us, we need to respond to that in a God-like way. We need to be humble. We need to receive the discipline and learn from it and become a better person because of it whether it's the rebuke of someone that we love they're trying to give us direction and give us wisdom and give us a better way or whether it's a whale coming and swallowing us God's discipline is an act of his grace and so make sure you respond to it in a godlike way let me give to you a third lesson from the story of Jonah. If we expect to receive God's grace, we have to be willing to extend that grace to others. Now, we've talked about this in weeks past, and, and the reason I'm being repetitive here is because we need this. I, I don't know if we all will get it in one week. We need this truth that if we expect to receive the grace of God into our life, we need to be willing to extend that same grace to other people. And Jonah was praying for God's grace in the belly of that whale. I know his prayer was desperate. He said, God, save me. If you'll save me, I'm thinking he's bargaining with God, surely. If you'll save me, I'll go to Nineveh. I'll preach. I'll do anything that you want me to do. Just get me out of the belly of this whale. Give me another chance. And God answered that prayer. He did save Jonah. The whale spewed him out on dry ground, and I am sure he was a sight to behold after having been in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights. And as soon as his feet hit dry land, he headed directly to Nineveh to preach. Did they listen to him? Yes, they did. They repented. The whole city repented. They turned from their sin. There was a great revival that took place in that city But then, something weird happened. Jonah got mad. He got upset. And that's hard for me to understand because as a preacher, if someone responds positively to my preaching, even if one responds positively to my preaching and comes and and makes a decision for Christ, I'm... I'm happy over that. I'm ecstatic about that. Well, Jonah didn't have one respond positively to his sermon. He had 120,000 people turn to Christ or turn to God. That was the population of the city of Nineveh. And you read the end of that that book, chapter 4, I think maybe even the last verse of the book, it says the entire city turned to God. 120,000. I don't know of any other time in history where there was that kind of response, where there was that kind of revival. This right here in the book of Jonah is, to my knowledge, the greatest revival that took place in the history of mankind, where you have 120,000 people at one time bowing the knee to God. And Jonah gets mad over it. When he's been the preacher... And he's preached for them to repent. And they have listened to him. They have repented. What in the world was going on in the mind of Jonah? Let me read to you again from this book. The moral of the story is pretty straightforward. Receiving grace is often easier... Than dispensing grace. Jonah's sin was that his religion was really all about him. While he eventually surrendered to the will of God, he never surrendered to the purposes of God in the world. Although he was the descendant of Abraham, the man through whom the world would be blessed, Jonah could not see his way clear to extend grace beyond the bloodline of Israel. In spite of his esteemed role as a prophet in Israel, the nation created to be a light to the nations, he resisted the notion of extending God's grace to those outside the borders of his country. For whatever reason, Jonah could never embrace God's global message of grace. (laughs) But Jonah is not alone. When we open the pages of the New Testament, we discover that the sin of Jonah was the majority view in Israel. The early church was divided over this same issue. Truth be told, this conflict of grace has been an issue for Christians and for the church in every generation. So before we are too hard on Jonah, let's take a little inventory. Who are the Ninevites in your life? Who are the people to whom you have had a hard time extending grace? Whose calamity do you secretly celebrate? Who do you secretly wish would get what you think they have coming to them? Let's start with the large groups. Rich people. Poor people. White people. Black people. Skinny people. Muslims. Okay, let's narrow it down a bit. What about your sister in law or your brother in law who divorced your sister and walked away from your niece or nephew? What about that ex boss, ex partner, ex husband, or ex wife? I know what you are thinking. That's different, that's personal. While those things, while those kinds of situations are certainly personal, they really aren't all that different. Those are people who need God's grace. And someday, God may assign you the task of extending grace in their direction. But that's between you and God. And if he decides you are the person for the job, I assure you, you will have a brand new appreciation for our friend Jonah. You see, it's a whole lot easier to receive grace than it is to extend grace. But that's what God has called us to do. Watch this video clip that I have for you.
1: Back and forth, back and forth.
0: Dr. Tony Campolo tells this story of an act of seemingly impossible forgiveness.
1: When the war ended, World War II, they took the Nazi soldiers out of the jail in Moscow and marched them down to the street, down the street to the train station, to be sent back to Germany. The, the citizens of Moscow lined the sidewalks. It took all their energy for the police to keep them from running forward and tearing these nazis to pieces we lost 425,000 people in world war ii that's the united states the russians lost 40 million citizens there wasn't a family in moscow that wasn't touched the hatred was overwhelming and they're screaming and they're yelling obscenities the first group down the line are these of the officers who had evidently been fed their tunics buttoned up high and they were marching in semi goose fashion showing that the that the imprisonment had not broken them and the people screamed and shouted and then all of a sudden everybody went silent for coming behind the officers were the enlisted men skin and bones diseased broken raggedy not marching in goose step just about dragging themselves along the street dead silence then one woman broke through the line and ran up and gave some bread to one of the Nazi soldiers and then it started happening up and down the lines people coming through the police and bringing food to these to the enemy uh, the German soldiers that told me this story said, I couldn't believe it. Grace, unexpected concern and love, and in a sense, forgiveness. And he said to me, as that happened, all I could think is they must be looking at us and realizing that we're not the enemy. We're just somebody's little boy, sick and dying, and far away from home. As he said that, I think we would all be gracious if we could look at each other and not see the enemy, but see that each of us, in his or her own way, is somebody's little kid, sick and dying, and far away from home grace.
0: Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could see our neighbor through a different set of eyes to see them through these these kinds of eyes, through God's eyes? Because really every person that we are in contact with, and that person may be offensive to us. And instead of seeing them as the enemy, we should be seeing them as a child of God. Yes, they are somebody else's little child. But ultimately, they are a child of God. They are a creation of the living God whom he loves, whom he has sent his son Jesus to die for that person, And they are simply in need of bread. They are in need of kindness. They are in need of grace. Because they are a far, far way from home. So, don't forget this last lesson. From the story and the life of Jonah. If you expect to receive God's grace, then you better be willing and ready to give His grace away. Let's pray together. God, help us. As we so much want to receive Your grace, help us to be ready to give it away. And I thank You God, even for your discipline. It's hard when we're going through those times. But thank you that you are there with us and you will bring us out of the fire to be a stronger, more holy person if we respond. In a godlike way. And we pray this in Jesus' name.